study of God's Word. Uh, we'll be looking at the lessons that are assigned for next Sunday. And uh, those, again, are on the sheet that is on the side. Uh, the, this will be the first Sunday in Lent, since Lent begins this Wednesday. Uh, before we get into the Word of God, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we gather here on this day when we celebrate the transfiguration of your Son, we look forward to that day when he returns in glory to take us to be with him where we will ever reside in his presence for eternity and with one another. We thank you through his work on the cross for us. That is a now our reality. We pray your blessing upon us that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us here this day as we study your word and continue to grow in our knowledge of that word and of your will for us as your children here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, uh, we are already going to be at Ash Wednesday this coming Wednesday. Easter is a little earlier this year. In fact, it's on April Fool's Day this year, April 1. But uh, we are already at the, the cusp of, uh, of beginning Lent, so sing all of your Alleluia's today because we won't hear any more until Easter morning. Uh, just a word, first of all, maybe a little bit about Lent. It is a 40-day period, of course, not including the Sundays. And so you'll see that the Sundays are Sundays in Lent, but not of Lent. And that is uh, intentional. Uh, every Sunday, whether it's in Lent or not, is to be a celebration of our Lord's victory over sin, death, and the grave, his resurrection from the dead. We don't uh, put that off uh, during Lent. But on the Sundays, the day that he rose, we continue in that celebration. Uh, in the church, historically, uh, this became a season of preparation, a penitential season, of course, uh, where we remember our own sinfulness, uh, when we practice repentance or a turning away from our sin, remembering ultimately that it is our sin that made Christ's death, suffering, and death on the cross necessary in the first place. So it has always had that sort of penitential uh, uh, feeling or, or mood, attitude toward it. Uh, in the church also, historically, this was the time when the confirmants were instructed. Uh, those who were going to be baptized, usually at the uh, Easter vigil, that night before service, or... Uh, on, on Sunday morning uh, at Easter service as well. So different historical traditions have, have arisen, but uh, we practice it beginning this Wednesday. Uh, services at 11 a.m., 5 and 6.30 here at St. Paul's uh, with a dinner at 5.30 for all. Okay. Now, first Sunday in Lent, so this is what we'll be looking at next Sunday, is always... The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. We always get that. Now, series B, the set of readings that we are on uh, this year, is Mark's gospel. And the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is all of two verses in the gospel of Mark. <laughs> so you'll see when we get to the gospel lesson, uh, there's some filler before and some filler after. There's just not a whole lot there. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But before that, I want to look at our Old Testament lesson, and uh, it is the uh, account of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
So you've got in the gospel lesson the idea of a temptation or a testing, and you've got in the Old Testament lesson, a, uh, a, again, a, a testing, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, and the epistle lesson is going to talk about a testing or a tempting. And so that clearly is the, the line, the trajectory through these three lessons for this week. The idea of temptation, testing, and again, in Lent, that's a very appropriate theme, isn't it? Um, let's take a look, first of all, at the collect for the day. And I've got that printed up at the top. O Lord, you led your ancient people through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. Guide the people of your church that following our Savior, we may walk through the wilderness of this world toward the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Jesus in the Gospel lesson is going to be out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And the collect makes reference to God's people being in the wilderness. And so, again, we'll comment a little more on that when we get to the Gospel lesson, but you can see clearly there is the tie here. Now, let's go, let's go right to the Old Testament lesson, and this is in Genesis 22, starting with verse 1. Let's back up just a little bit before this. Uh, remember, Abraham is promised, all the way back in Genesis 12, actually, that uh, God comes and makes a covenant with him and promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, and that by him, through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, time goes on. And what does Abraham and his wife Sarah not have? What do they not have? As time goes on, yeah, a male heir, a male heir to continue that line. So remember, who has a bright idea? Remember, who, who was it that came up with a bright idea here that, you know, God just doesn't seem to be coming through like he promised. We'll take matters into our own hands. Sarah, remember? And Sarah had an Egyptian uh, servant girl named Hagar, remember? And she suggests, she is the one who suggests that Abraham, uh, through Hagar, produce an heir. Since nothing was happening uh, between Abraham and Sarah, and uh, there's, a, there's a great sermon there, right, for taking things into our own hands versus relying upon the promise of God. That'll be another sermon another time. But remember then, uh, her plan, so to speak, works, and Hagar conceives and bears a son whose name is Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael. And uh, then remember after that, it's not exactly peace and harmony in the, in the household. Uh, Hagar is looking at Sarah, at least Sarah perceives, she is looking at her with contempt, and that she was able to conceive, and Sarah is not. And uh, I just uh, think, you know, one of the great verses in Scripture <clears throat> is in Genesis 16. Now, remember whose idea this was. Remember whose idea. Genesis 16 uh, verses 5 and 6. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So who is she blaming now for this predicament? 
Abraham, that's right, her idea. Abraham simply says, yes, dear, and uh, now he's at fault. Uh, you remember a, pri a time prior to this when a husband listened to her wife, his wife and things didn't turn out so well? <laughs> All right, since I want to have dinner tonight, I'm going to stop right there and uh, not, not comment any further. But uh, uh, at any rate, that's the, that's the backdrop to this, okay? And so uh, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and we won't go into all the details of the, the confrontation, uh, even between uh, Ishmael and uh, Isaac. Now, remember then, God comes back and says, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, and the promise comes true, there is a son born, a son of the promise born, who is Isaac, okay? So waited all that time went through all of that trouble uh, with Ishmael and Hagar and so on, finally the son comes, the one that has been promised. And that leads up to what is going to happen in our Old Testament lesson for today. And when you're reading along in Genesis, this is almost shocking when you come upon it uh, as to what God asks him to do. Uh, let's read through just a few verses and then go back and talk about it. Uh, Genesis 22, beginning with verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mount." on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So let's stop right there. After these things, meaning after everything that had happened before that we just kind of reviewed, and even the sending of Ishmael and Hagar away and so on, after all of that now, God comes. And notice here, who is the source of this testing in verse 1? Who is the source? God is. This wasn't something that Abraham looked out and saw the Canaanites practicing, which, frankly, we, we think they did. In fact, we know later on they did. Uh, later, it, we, don't, we don't hear God's people doing this until much later, in other words, sacrificing their children to a false god. But that doesn't mean it wasn't going on amongst the Canaanites. So it's not that Abraham looked around and saw that the Canaanites were doing this and said, okay, this seems like a good idea, uh, it, it actually originates now with God. And God tests or tries Abraham, and he says to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am. He said, take your son, notice here, your only son, Isaac. Now, didn't Abraham have another son? But notice here, this one is the son of the promise. This is the one that, uh, in God's eyes, is the son, your only son. Notice whom you love, and that word literally means you have grown to love and you are standing in a state of loving your son right now, that one. Go to the land of Moriah. Now, where was Moriah? Where was Mount Moriah? Anybody know? Jerusalem. Exactly right. In, uh, in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, 
We're told that Solomon builds the temple where? Mount Moriah. So you've got this sacrifice going to be happening, or at least intended to happen, at Mount Moriah. You've got the Old Testament temple built at Mount Moriah. And who else is going to one day be sacrificed very near Mount Moriah? Jesus himself. So this is a very significant spot. Okay? So go to Mount Moriah and offer him there as burnt offering. So what's, that, what's a burnt offering? He's going to be put on a stack of wood and burned up, just like a, just like a sacrifice would be made uh, of a bull or a ram and so on, a, a regular burnt offering. And notice there, on the mountains of which I shall tell you. Uh, it seems like when God sent Abraham places, he never really gave him the exact destination, right? If initial call, go to the land I will show you. Here, go to Moriah, to the mountain I will show you. All right? And think of what must be going through Abraham's mind right now. Really? You wonder. I was thinking about this this morning. Did he tell Sarah? You wonder, right? Or was it just, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking Isaac and we're going away. Uh, we don't have any, we're just speculating here, obviously. It's not in the text. But you've got to wonder from a human standpoint, what's going through his mind? And we're going to see as this unfolds what goes through Isaac's mind here, okay? So offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So, going on now, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. Now, the donkey was not necessarily for Isaac to ride on. It was for all the wood and all the supplies that was gonna, would be needed. And the two attendants were probably to care for the donkey and for all the help with the wood and all the supplies. Let's remember Abram. Uh, Abraham is uh, 100 plus now at this point in his life, uh, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. Now, whether he actually cut the wood at 100 years old or not, uh, we don't know. I, I could say, I could come in this morning and say, um, Ann and I had our, had our master bathroom painted the other day. Does that mean that we did it? Ann and I painted our master bath. We may have had somebody else do it. So whether he actually cut the wood or not, we don't know. And arose and went to the place which God had, had told him. Now, verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Hmm. So what is Abraham saying there? Who's going to come back? At least by, by this, is he saying. Both of them are going to come back. Uh, he has a faith here, and if we were to look at Hebrews 11.19, uh, it sort of interprets this for us, and says that it interprets it, that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead, that he was able to raise uh, 
his slain son back to life once again. So see, this is not Abram saying, I don't think this is going to happen. You know, I, we're going to go, but God's going to intervene, and I'm not going to have to sacrifice my son. Hebrews 11:19 says that he believed that God would raise him from the dead. So he would actually sacrifice him, and God would raise him back up. So again, think of the faith of Abraham here, the unquestioning faith. Uh, there are times in our lives, aren't there, when things just don't seem to make sense when they happen? Not according to the way we would have thought it through. And what do we do at those points when we don't understand or don't completely comprehend or maybe even agree with at all what's happening? In faith, right? In trust. We follow. And it's not, it's not an easy thing to do at times, but here we see Abraham doing exactly that. Clearly he doesn't understand why, but clearly he has faith to believe, as Hebrews said, God would raise his son back up once again, okay? Um, going on, uh, verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. The fire might have been uh, hot coals, we think, to, that would have been used to ignite uh, the wood, so carried in a in a container. Okay, so he's got all this. He loads all the wood on Isaac. Uh, and verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, so they went both of them together. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, my father. Can you imagine how that must have cut the heart of Abraham when, when Isaac, it's, a, love, it's a, a term of endearment there, my father. And he said, now Abraham answers him very matter-of-factly, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You know, asking the obvious question, right? Uh, where is the lamb for this? Verse 8, Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, so they went, both of them, together. So think about this again. Isaac, think about the faith of Isaac here also. He doesn't see a lamb out there somewhere. He is loaded up with all of the wood. Uh, where is this lamb? God will provide it, says Abraham. God will provide it. Going on, verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Again, think of what is going through Isaac's mind at this point. Could he not figure out? You know, at, at least this does not look good, right? At this point, I mean, we always talk about the faith of Abraham, and, and we should, but think about Isaac here, right? The young guy. 
so verse, uh, uh, let's see, verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So the angel of the Lord intervenes in order to save Isaac. Now, who is the angel of the Lord, at least many times in the Old Testament? Is the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, if you look at uh, 16, verse 13 in Genesis, we won't bother to read it right now, but in 16, verse 13, uh, Sarah addresses this angel of the Lord as God. And we're going to see coming up, uh, in 17, verse 18, the angel of the Lord addresses Hagar as God from heaven. And this angel is addressing Abraham from heaven. But we're going to see coming up in a few verses that this angel uh, speaks as God. And so again, in most cases in the Old Testament where this occurs, this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now think of what's happening here. You've got Christ who will eventually become, uh, will eventually come into this world, will take on human flesh, and will intervene for all. But right here, he intervenes for Isaac and saves the life of Isaac. Okay? Verse 12, he, this, the angel Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You get that rhythm again, your son, your only son. The only thing we don't have there is whom you love. That was what he said before. Now let me ask you this. It says in verse 12, for now I know. Well, didn't God know this before? Is God all-knowing? Didn't God know before that he feared him and wouldn't do this? By, by the fact that he's omniscient, we would say yes. That word, this word for know means uh, to learn by experience. In other words, to observe it by experience. Now I know from having seen you do it that you fear uh, God. And so this fear is not fearing, um, you know, of being harmed by God or condemned by God, but it's that reverent fear of God, seeing that you have not withheld your only son from me. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by, its horn, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let's stop there for just a second. Um, can you see a... Uh, there, I've got about three different sermons running through my head here, but... Uh, 
God stops Abraham, ironically, from doing what he will not stop himself from doing about 2,000 years later. He stops Abraham from offering his only son there on Mount Moriah. But about 2,000 years later, he's going to offer up his own son and is not going to pull back. In fact, well, he is going to pull back in a sense. He's going to forsake his own son on that cross. And so you think about the irony there in all of that. And uh, Isaac, you know, again, the, the unquestioning faith of the son, just like Jesus, who came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him, right? There's, there's just so much in the way of connection here between this Old Testament lesson of sacrifice and sacrifice spared to the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate intervention that God is going to do through his son at that very same location or very near that same location about 2,000 years later. Okay, um, Verse 15, just to finish off this uh, lesson then. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Uh, may seem elementary, but again, this is just a renewal of the, of the covenant of God's promise to Abraham that he made in Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and so on. It's repeated again here. And how will all of the nations of the earth be blessed through the offspring of Abraham? Is that just referring to the, to the Jewish people who are going to be a great blessing to all people? Yes, the Savior would come through not only the line of Abraham, but then later we get it through the line of David, of Judah, and that Savior would eventually be born. And what, what an appropriate name for that place the Lord will provide, right? Because, again, 2,000 years later, the Lord is going to provide in a way that that is a blessing to all nations of the earth when his own son hangs on that cross. Okay? So there's a lot here uh, that you can, uh, can kind of soak in, uh, and you see a God, again, of great mercy, a God um, who, uh, in effect, by this act is saying, no, I am not like the Canaanite false gods. You don't sacrifice your children to me so that I might give you life, because that's what they thought. No, that is not me. I will do the sacrificing for you one day. All right? All right, let's stop here for a minute and see, are there any questions or comments on this lesson? Don? Yes. 
Yes, yeah, Don's comment was, you think about Isaac at this point uh, being uh, young and strong and Abraham being the other side of 100 at least, you know, he could have, from a physical standpoint, uh, revolted and, you know, uh, thrown the wood down and, and ran away. But again, uh, that unquestioning faith, right? Uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, is how Hebrews 11 defines faith. And uh, like I say, we always tend to focus on the faith of Abraham, and good that we should, uh, but think of the faith of Isaac as well. As, you know, it's easy for us to sit here in the gymnasium in our padded chairs and climate controlled, but there's Isaac on the altar, the wood is piled up, and the fire is there, and the sword is being drawn back. That's faith, too, right? All right, any other comments or questions? Yes. Oh, uh, so your, your question was, did Abraham... Oh, okay. That's a good question. The question is, did Isaac also hear the angels of the Lord's command, do not lay your hand on your son... That's an inter... I, I don't know... I, I'm trying to think if there's anything here in the text that says that, that Isaac... That, that verifies that Isaac also heard it. Um, there's nothing that says he didn't, of course, but I don't see anything here that necessarily says Isaac heard it as well. There was, there's certainly no reason to keep Isaac from hearing it, conceal it from him. John? So the point was, uh, for our listeners on radio, uh, that, again, going back to this faith of Isaac, that he knows the routine for the sacrifice, in fact, even to the point where he asks, hey, where is the lamb? And allows himself to be bound this way. And so you see a couple things there. Again, the total submission to the will of the Father, even though Isaac doesn't understand what's going on here and why there isn't a lamb here, he is satisfied with his father's answer, at least as far as we know, that God will provide. But yeah, again, the, the faith of Isaac, who, who knew, must have known, as I said before, when, especially when the sword is being drawn back, this isn't looking good, right? <laughs> and again, just marvel at that faith. Anything else? Either comments or questions? Yes. Yeah, so the comment was, in addition to the faith that he had, is it also a comment on the respect and, and uh, obedience of, of children to their elders at that time? Uh, yeah, certainly, certainly could have been, especially in a godly home like Abraham and Isaac, right? Yeah, that's a good comment as well. And I don't think those are, those are two things that really kind of go together, aren't they? Don't we also teach our children this same kind of unquestioning faith and trust in God, which also results in a faith and trust of the parent, of their, of their earthly parents as well. So those two things are probably not, it's not good to separate those. They go actually hand in hand, but that's a, that's a good point. Okay? Yes, please. Right. Yes, the comment was about God's timing. Uh, in this case, just in the nick of time, right? And... Uh, God's timing is always impeccable, isn't it? Uh, it doesn't always go according to our time and our timing. Uh, again, if we could only know what was going through Isaac's mind right at that point, but again, 
God's timing is, is perfect. Okay? Anything else? Good comments. All right. Let's jump now to the gospel lesson. We'll come back to the epistle lesson because there's a real good tie here with the gospel lesson. I mentioned that the temptation account of Christ in the gospel of Mark is quite brief, uh, only two verses. And so as a result, uh, on the first Sunday in Lent, we actually read, uh, uh, go back to what we've already covered in a sense, in starting with the baptism account. So starting at verse 9, why don't we just read, we'll read through the whole lesson. It's not very long, then we can come back and take it apart. Um, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, so circling back now to verse 9. In those days, which is a way of saying, in the days when people were going out from Judea and Jerusalem out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. Okay, so it's in those days. And there was apparently a big crowd, crowds of people were going out. And it's not that far from Jerusalem. Uh, and when it says wilderness, it's a way of saying where there were no people. It's a barren, uh, somewhat arid uh, area where the River Jordan cuts down. And by the way, the River Jordan is not like the mighty Mississippi. It's, uh, it uh, might be a little disappointing if you go and see it. It's not nearly as big and powerful uh, as we think of many rivers here in this country. So he goes out from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So just for a moment, uh, why... Did Jesus need to be baptized because of his own sin? Obviously not. So why is Jesus there in the water being baptized by John? What's he doing there? Number one is identifying with whom? All of us there, isn't he? All of us in that water being baptized. Uh, he's also fulfilling, you remember the time, we won't look at it now, but it's in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus is uh, back in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah 61. And he reads the scroll, talking about the one who is the anointed of God and the Spirit of God resting on him. And then he closes up the scroll, sits down, and remember what he says? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But where did that happen? Where was he anointed? Where did the Spirit uh, rest on him? Right here. 
right here in a baptism. Now, we don't, uh, you know, normally associate those two things, but he's identifying with us. He is anointed here with water and the Spirit, and from here on is going to begin his three-year public ministry that will end up at a cross and an empty tomb and eventually an ascension to heaven. All right? So, uh, verse 10, when he came up out of the water, now I will just make a comment here. Um, some people who want to say that the only way to be baptized is by immersion, that's not us. Uh, we don't say that. We say immersion is a, a fine way of baptizing, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. But they will often use this as a proof text. When he came up out of the water, well, what's he actually coming up out of the water? Not necessarily being dunked under and coming up, but what? Walking up out of the water. When he came up out of the water, immediately, now who saw this? Who saw the heavens open and the Spirit come down in the form of a dove? He did. See that? He saw this, and he saw that the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And today at the transfiguration of our Lord on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, it's almost like bookends. I think I mentioned this before in Epiphany. We, Epiphany, the season of Epiphany closes with Jesus up on that mountain and the voice of the Father once again. This is my beloved Son, and what is Pastor Smith, those of you with the earlier service, listen to him, right? Listen to him. And so you get these bookends. This one here is just Christ seeing it and hearing it. It's addressed you. And in our transfiguration account, it's Peter, James, and John also seeing and hearing. In fact, the words are addressed to Peter, James, and John, aren't they, in a sense? Listen to him, right? The third person, him. So it's, it's a little different here, but again, it's, it's neat for, for us as we can begin and uh, end the season of Epiphany with those that... that validation, verbal validation from the Father about the Son. Okay? Now, verse 11, does anything uh, seem, I'm sorry, verse 12, does anything seem strange to you at the beginning of verse 12? Who, who is it that drives Jesus out uh, into the wilderness? The Spirit does. Now, who would you expect maybe is trying to drive Jesus out into the wilderness? The devil or Satan, right? The adversary, the enemy. No, it's the Spirit here who drives Jesus out into the wilderness. So is there any, uh, you get the impression, who is running the show here, God or Satan? God is, right. And here you've got that same Spirit that came down in the form of the dove is driving the Son out into the wilderness to be tested or uh, tempted uh, and, and the thing that also is kind of strange here, he's in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, where else were God's people in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And you've got him out in the wilderness for 40 days, God's people out in the wilderness for 40 years. 
Were God's people faithful when they were out in the wilderness for 40 years? No, no. And is this son of God going to be faithful when he's out in the wilderness for 40 days? Yes. You see the, 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 the comparison here that he is tempted or tested. He is faithful, unlike God's people in the Old Testament who were unfaithful. He is faithful. Now, what about us? He is faithful, what? In our place as well, right? Are we always standing firm and in our faith as a result of being tempted or tested? Unfortunately not. We wish we were. But he is faithful for us, isn't he? Okay? Now, the other thing that's kind of, I don't know, strange, uh, or let's say unexpected, is that you do not get in Mark a blow-by-blow account of the temptations. You don't get the account of, you know, being uh, shown the kingdoms of the world and saying, just bow down and worship me and all this will be yours. You don't get the account of him being led up to the highest point by the temple and and tempted with, throw yourself down from here. For the you know, angels have commanded they will watch over you or turn these stones into bread. You get none of this blow-by-blow account in Mark. In fact, you don't, even get, you don't even get the result here, do you? He's out, drove him out in the wilderness, verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. You don't even get, you don't even get the result. Well, was it, did he survive? You know, was it, did he survive the temptation? Was he victorious? Was he successful? And there's been a lot written on this. I'll just say that what happens in Mark is a little bit different in that Mark is setting up, which will continue all the way through the Gospel of Mark, this really cosmic battle between God and Satan, between the uh, godly forces and the forces of Satan. And at this point, he's not interested in giving us, Mark isn't, the blow-by-blow account. This is going to happen throughout the Gospel of Mark, and it's going to culminate at the cross where a centurion is going to say, surely this was the Son of God. Those of you that are going to the 1045 in the sanctuary today, the service of 1045 in the sanctuary, take a look at the piece that the choir sings by Carl Schalk. It has that very quote in it. I think it's like the second from the last verse stanza. Uh, Has it right in there, okay? Let me just show you one thing. Turn to Mark chapter 3. Those of you that have your Bible, and I'll show you where this really, one point where this really comes to a head. Uh, 3 verse 22. In Mark, who are they accusing Jesus? When he goes around and heals people, casts Uh, out demons and even brings people back to life. Who are the scribes and the Pharisees attributing his powers to? The devil, which Jesus is going to show is completely ridiculous. So look at verse 22 and following. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. So who is Beelzebul? Satan, okay. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Who is the strong man here in the house that is going to be bound? Satan. Christ has come to bind the strong man. And he is doing that one by one by one. He's going to uh, be victorious in the temptation by Satan. He's going to cast out demons. One after the other, they're going to fall. He is, so, it, again, in Mark, you get this, this battle that goes on between the, the forces of God and the forces of Satan. Okay? And finally, as I say, it culminates on the cross. So you don't have, in the first part of Mark here, it's very, very brief. There's not a full-blown account, uh, as you get in the other Gospels, because it's leading up to that final conclusion. Then finally, uh, verse 14, after John was arrested. Now, which John is it uh, who was arrested? John the Baptist. And remember, why was he arrested? He objected to the incestuous marriage uh, of Herod. And remember, Herod has a great company of uh, people over. And uh, daughter comes out to dance. And he says, uh, she apparently uh, was a big hit. And uh, Herod says, uh, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And what does she ask for? She goes and asks mom, what should I ask for? Uh, mom says, the head of John the Baptist. Right? So, this is just setting this time. You'll get that later. Mark is just kind of setting the table here. It's in Mark chapter 6. That'll be coming up later. But it, just to point this in time, now after John was arrested, so John's already arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God or the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled. It's a way of saying there's, um, there, in, in Greek, there's a couple different words for time. And this is the word that means the, the opportune time, right? Cleo, uh, back to what you were saying. The, 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 the opportune time, God's time, right? The time is, as it says there, is fulfilled. Or in other words, the time is now. That opportune time is now. And uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, the kingdom is present in Jesus Christ, standing right in front of you. And notice two things are mentioned there. What, is, what does he tell them they should do? Jesus tells them they should first repent. And what does it mean to repent? Sorrow for sins, yeah. It literally means to have a change in mind, okay? But it's also a change in direction. In other words, if I'm going one way, I repent and I turn around and I go the other way, right? And so do that, in other words, turn away from your sin, have a change in your mind, and secondly, believe the gospel. And there is a beautiful definition of what we as Lutherans know as repentance. It's not just being sorrowful over your sin, but it's believing that there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ.
So Jesus is preaching exactly that. Uh, certainly repentance involves contrition for our sins, sorrow for our sin, but it also is faith in the forgiveness that 